Hi, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating and a review. Go ahead and tell a friend about it too. I'll wait. Okay, done? Now on to the show. What are navigable waters of the United States? It's something agency bureaucrats and property owners have battled over since the passage of the Clean Water Act in 1972. And a Supreme Court ruling that could have cleared it up is about as clear as mud. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're looking at Rapanos versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. The human body is 60% made of it. It covers 70% of the earth. We can only survive a few days without it. It's a building block of life. You'll find it on the tallest mountains and in the deepest trenches. It may even be present on the moons of other planets. There's nothing quite like a cold glass of it on a hot day. But one question has plagued the federal government for decades. What is water? Specifically, what is navigable water? Since 1972, when Congress passed the Clean Water Act, regulators with the Environmental Protection Agency have pressed a broad interpretation of the phrase navigable waters of the United States. This expansive view increases the agency's authority and leaves property owners like John Rapanos and Chantel and Mike Sackett confused. We'll get to Rapanos, the Sacketts, and others later. But first, what led to the passage of the Clean Water Act and what does it do? We know just the guy to ask. I am Jonathan Adler. I am the Johann Verheim Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. The, the Federal Clean Water Act, uh, or what we call the Clean Water Act, uh, was enacted in 1972. Uh, in response to concerns that state governments were not doing enough to uh, address water quality and that water quality was uh, a problem throughout the United States that was not getting better quickly enough. Today, we know that despite the rhetoric of the time, um, water quality had been improving uh, and and was improving in the 1960s, that, that the same burst in environmental consciousness, which led to federal legislation, was also having an effect at the state level. But at the time, people weren't so aware of that. They were aware of things like the infamous 1969 Cuyahoga River fire, which was not the first time the Cuyahoga River had caught on fire. Jonathan is referring to when an oil slick on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, caught fire on the morning of June 22nd, 1969. Seven months later, the Environmental Protection Agency was born, and the Cuyahoga River fire became the symbol of the new environmental movement. Jonathan is quick to point out. Lots of industrial cities um, in the late mm-hmm. 19th and early 20th century had rivers that accumulated uh, chemicals and debris that, that caught on fire. And that was a problem that was easy to identify, and people did something about it. And, and there was no EPA involved. Um, in fact, some of the authority the federal government could have used in the 20th century, earlier on, to reduce the threat of river fires, it actually did not use. So all of the conquering of that problem was completely um, 
uh, accomplished by a combination of state and local efforts, including some private efforts. And the Cuyahoga Fire of 1969 wasn't a sign of how bad things were becoming. It was actually kind of a reminder of how bad things had been in much of the country earlier in the 20th century. Um, but we kind of have forgotten that. Um, and even the EPA sometimes forgets that. The Clean Water Act wasn't Congress's first foray into legislating water quality. As our colleague Damien Schiff pointed out, There had been, for almost a century prior to the Clean Water Act's passage, there had been some type of federal water quality legislation, like the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899, or even earlier, more tailored statutes that were designed to clean up things in New York Harbor, for example. Damien is counsel of record in Sackett versus EPA, a Clean Water Act case that's at the Supreme Court this term. Longtime listeners will recall Damien made his dist debut in our first season, reading a dissent by SCOTUS luminary Joseph Story. But as Damien was saying. So there were definitely federal laws in place that dealt with aspects of pollution, but there was a, a sense that these were inadequate in part because the enforcement mechanisms were pretty cumbersome, uh, in part that the, the regulatory systems didn't really try to improve water quality. They just simply tried to prevent any worsening of water quality. And also the approach was more focused on a downstream assessment as opposed to regulating at the source of pollution. Returning to the Clean Water Act, it was introduced in the Senate in the fall of 1971 and debated for several months, ultimately securing passage in October 1972. But then... It was vetoed by President Nixon on the ground that it would impose significant new liabilities on local governments, especially with respect to um, municipal sewer operations. Nixon also was concerned about the act's $24 billion price tag, but it took just two days to muster the votes to override Tricky Dick's veto, and the Clean Water Act became the law on October 18, 1972. So what does it actually do? The biggest regulatory thrust of the act is a prohibition on the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters of the United States without a permit. And it's worth unpacking that. Discharge of a pollutant is defined incredibly broadly. Pollutants could be toxic chemicals, but a pollutant could be dirt uh, or soil or gravel or heat. Um, Pretty much anything that could modify the water, an industrial facility or a factory that is emitting or discharging stuff into a river or a stream or a lake or a pond has to have a permit uh, to do that. Uh, And that sort of permit will typically um, identify levels of contaminants that are measurable and what the maximum level that can be discharged is. Um, But it also means that, say, someone that wants to fill a wetland or build a dock or, or some sort of structure that extends into a water also needs a permit. But what are navigable waters of the United States, you ask? That is the, uh, the, the key question, and I think part of the answer is, involves looking back to these laws that we were just talking about, um, the, the federal laws that led up to the enactment of the Clean Water Act in 1972, and to sort of look at well, what, what were those laws regulating, in part because the key definitional phrase in the statute, navigable waters are defined to include the, quote, the waters of the United States. And that's a a peculiar phrasing because you don't typically see that phrase used in a lot of judicial decisions or in statutes prior to 1972. However, it was used 
in certain sections of the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899. And that was a statute, for example, that was always interpreted to be limited to traditional navigable waters. That is those water bodies that actually can serve as a channel of interstate, an aquatic channel of, of interstate commerce. So that's one indication as to what the waters of the United States means. But I think an, an even better answer is just look at the text itself, because that would solve a lot of the abuse that you've seen over the last 50 years and how EPA and the Army Corps have administered the statute. What I mean by that is the statute doesn't say, let's regulate waters and wetlands of the United States, nor does it say, let's regulate all those activities that may have an impact on the waters of the United States, but rather it just says the waters of the United States. And I think it's just a plain meaning analysis if you're regulating waters, that necessarily means that you're not regulating non-waters. And what are non-waters? Well, waters themselves are things like streams, creeks, rivers, lakes, what you would typically consider to be a water body. But then you have other features like wetlands, fens, bogs, swamps, prairie potholes, vernal pools that clearly have some aquatic aspect to them, but are not themselves truly waters. And so I think that's where, where you can draw a, a distinction, that if it's not a water, then by definition, it can't be regulated. Of course, there are limits to what the federal government can do, as Jonathan explained. Congress's power, or the federal government's power to regulate waters of the United States is pursuant to the power to regulate commerce among the several states. And if you go back to Gibbons versus Ogden, you see this understanding that waters, uh, navigable waters in particular, are routes of commerce are means of transporting people and goods, uh, and therefore the federal government has an interest uh, in that. And we talk about you know, the federal government's interest in the navigable servitude and in the coastlines and the like. So we know that that power to regulate waters is pursuant to the commerce power, and but it's no broader than the commerce power. And one of the things that's in the background of debates over what the scope of waters of the United States is, is that is how broad is the commerce power? Um, certainly uh, regulating those waters that could be, that are used for commerce, that's easy. Um, those that are navigable, in fact, that's easy. The problem becomes that in a world where we recognize that to some degree, everything is connected to everything else, there's a line drawing problem. And it's the same sort of line drawing problem we see in commerce clause cases more broadly. We recognize that there have to be places that are beyond the scope of federal regulation, even though we might be able to identify some potential ecological connection to waters in the United States, but that to regulate navigable waters probably does reach at least a little bit beyond things that are purely navigable. And the court and the agencies have had a hard time drawing a workable line. Agencies, I don't think, always always wanted a workable line. They would just like to have more authority. But um, that's in the background what's going on, is understanding what the scope of this authority is. And uh, just because Congress may have wanted to regulate broadly um, doesn't mean that the federal government can regulate that broadly. By the 1980s, regulators from the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers stretched the term to include tributaries of interstate waterways and adjacent wetlands. Then, as Jonathan noted, I think some of this history is, is worthwhile. So the first President Bush made a pledge when he was running for election in 1988 that he was going to be the environmental president and that one of the things he wanted was no net loss of wetlands. 
And while he was president, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers issued a new uh, wetland delineation manual seeking to identify where all the wetlands subject to federal regulatory jurisdiction were. And it was far broader than anyone had imagined. And part of the problem, too, was that the regulations on the books were really broad. And what we often refer to as the migratory bird rule, but was really the migratory bird guidance interpreting the regulations, basically said that any water, including wetlands, including intrastate waters and wetlands, that is or could be used for commerce, including as well as things that could affect commerce, such as by being habitat for migratory birds, was subject to federal regulatory uh, authority. And this became referred to as the, the glancing goose test. Quite literally, the position of the federal government was if um, migratory birds could view this pro- a given property or a given wetland, for example, as a potential resting spot during the migration, because it, it had the necessary characteristics, good enough. Good enough for government work. Good enough for government work. This led to a lot of litigation, culminating in a 2001 Supreme Court case, Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County versus Army Corps of Engineers, or SWINK. Here's more from Jonathan. They wanted to build a bale fill, so a waste disposal facility, and in some land that had been, been mined, and, and the depressions from the mining activity resulted in some ponds and some local um, environmental groups that, that wanted to stop this development identified or uh, notified the Corps of Engineers saying, hey, this, these ponds are large enough that they have, may have ecological significance and they attract migratory birds and you should prevent this project uh, and deny their permits. Uh, so that case goes up to the Supreme Court on the question of are these intrastate ponds, right? So these ponds that were wholly within Illinois uh, are subject to federal regulation under this uh, theories like the, the, the migratory bird rule. And the Supreme Court says no. Isolated waters, waters that are intrastate and that are not clearly bound up in you know, kind of navigable waters and broader water systems are beyond the scope of, of federal regulation. And that this was necessary, among other things, to ensure that the Clean Water Act is constitutional. So the court makes very clear that a broader interpretation of the Clean Water Act would exceed the scope of Congress's power under, under the Commerce Clause. Uh, and so they were going to interpret the Clean Water Act in a way that would preserve its constitutionality and said that, you know, on the one hand, if you have a water body that is clearly bound up with, that there is a really clear, significant connection to interstate waters, to nav- interstate navigable waters, that's one thing. Um, but when it's isolated, that's that it's clearly not. Can you guess what happened next? And so you would have thought, the EPA and Army Corps Engineers would have said, gosh, you know, we want to have regulations that are valid. So, and the Supreme Court has said that, that our regulations are overbroad. Maybe we should go back and rewrite them. But that did not happen. And so it was inevitable that you would get another case testing these boundaries. That's where John Rapanos, a developer in Michigan, comes into the picture. Technically, his case was already underway when the Supreme Court decided swank. In 1989, John pulled up some trees on his 54-acre site and filled the stump holes with sand. Federal regulators claimed an adjacent drainage ditch qualified his land as a wetland that required a permit to develop and slapped him with a cease and desist order. 
John didn't back down, and the government brought charges in federal court for violating the Clean Water Act. Facing millions of dollars in fines and prison time, John fought back. He argued that his land was miles from any navigable waterway. In 1995, a jury convicted John of destroying federally regulated wetlands. He was fined $185,000 and sentenced to three years probation and 200 hours of community service. But a plucky public interest legal foundation learned about John's plight and helped him take his case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard oral argument in February 2006. We'll hear argument first this morning in Rapanos versus United States and Carabell versus United States Army Corps of Engineers. Here's PLF attorney Reed Hopper arguing before the Supreme Court. This is a case of agency overreaching. In this case, the Corps and EPA pushed the very limits of congressional authority, contrary to the plain text of the Act and without any clear indication Congress intended that result. They claim 404A jurisdiction over the entire tributary system, from the smallest trickle to the largest watershed, sweeping in, sweeping in remote, non-navigable wetlands 20 miles from a traditional navigable water. This limitless claim of jurisdiction shifts the federal-state balance and raises significant constitutional questions. It goes somewhat beyond the smallest trickle, doesn't it? Doesn't it also include ditches that currently don't have any trickle if they obtain a trickle during the rainstorm? <laughs> yes, Your Honor. Uh, they actually uh, argue that it, it makes no difference whether they're, what, what the substantiality is or the directness of the connection is. Um, it's irrelevant to the jurisdictional determination. And as I said, they, they, the uh, agencies assert jurisdiction over even the entire watershed. For example, the Mississippi watershed the uh, largest in the nation, covers one million square acre, uh, one million square miles, um, and reaches from the Rockies to the Appalachians and uh, drains 41% of the 48 uh, lower states. Throughout the argument, the justices grappled with the breadth of the definition of waters of the United States. Here's an exchange between Justice Scalia and Paul Clement, who was then the top lawyer for the government. But, so but here's, here's the fly in the ointment. You, you, you interpret tributary to include storm drains and ditches that only carry off rainwater. I mean, it makes an immense difference to to, to the scope of jurisdiction of the Corps of Engineers. I mean, when when you talk about adjacent to a tributary, I think, you know, maybe adjacent to the Missouri River or something like that. No, you're talking about adjacent to a storm drain. I don't know how a storm drain is a water of the United States, that's all. I mean, all of these terms that you're throwing around somehow have to come within a reasonable usage of the term waters of the United States. And I do not see how a storm drain under anybody's uh, concept is, is a water of the United States. With respect, Justice Scalia, some things that you might classify as a storm drain are actually very deep channels that have a continuous flow of water. No, I, I was referring to a real storm drain. Uh, well, okay. but, but therein is the problem, which is some things that are part of the stormwater drainage system of a city are actually things that were previous navigable natural waters. I mean, so And some aren't, but, but you would sweep them all in, into the jurisdiction of the Corps of Engineers. We would, Justice Scalia, but I guess if we can start with the proposition that tributaries are covered and then some things that the Corps thinks are tributaries you disagree with, that would be fine, but that would be a different case. 
If storm drains are in, what's out when it comes to navigable waters of the United States? brings us to the ruling. John Rapanos won, but it's complicated. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote one opinion, which Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito joined. And Justice Anthony Kennedy agreed with the outcome, that is, that the lower court got it wrong, but he wrote his own opinion. Here's Scalia for the plurality. Under its regulations, the Corps has asserted permitting jurisdiction over, as waters of the United States... Storm sewers, man-made drainage dishes miles from traditional waterways, and and arid canyons connected to waters only through the flow of groundwater over centuries, and even desert washes that hold rainwater once a year. And it has also asserted jurisdiction over wetlands adjacent to these features, by which it means wetlands nearby, even if separated by a 70-foot-wide impermeable dike uh, over which automobiles travel, wetlands that are connected to United States waters by sheet flow of rainwater during storms, and wetlands connected to such waters by flooding once every hundred years. We think all this departs very much indeed from what the statute provides. So, what are waters of the United States? Used in the plural and with the definite article, this term refers only, in in the words of, of the dictionary definition, to water, quote, as found in streams and bodies forming geographical features such as oceans, rivers, and lakes, close quote. A country's waters do not include dry channels, desert washes, or storm gutters. They include streams, rivers, lakes, oceans, In short, relatively permanent, continuously standing or flowing bodies of water. The Act itself distinguishes conveyances that typically contain intermittent flows of water, such as ditches, channels, and conduits, from permanent bodies of water by defining the former separately as point sources, not as waters of the United States. And as for waters that are adjacent to waters of the United States... When a swamp borders on a river or lake, there is no clear line showing where the water ends and the wetland begins. Because of this inherent ambiguity, we held that the Corps' inclusion of adjacent, that is, abutting wetlands as waters of the United States, was a permissible construction of the statute. He's referring to the earlier decision in Swank here, but back to Scalia. In order for a wetland that neighbors a ditch or drain to constitute part of the waters of the United States... Two criteria must be satisfied. First, the nearby channel must contain a relatively permanent body of water that would normally be described as a stream, river, or lake, not merely intermittent or ephemeral flows of water. Second, the wetland must have a continuous surface connection to the nearby water, making it difficult to determine where the water ends and the land begins. Only wetlands that are continuously physically connected to relatively permanent waters are part of those waters. And here's Justice Kennedy's concurrence. In my view, the correct approach has already been stated by the Court's opinion in our most recent case on the topic, the Swank case, to which Justice Scalia has just referred. 
there the court said the regulation uh, uh, can be sustained if there's a significant nexus with the waters that are navigable in the usual sense. An application of this standard in today's cases leads me to agree with the plurality that the cases must be remanded, but in most cases my interpretation of the act will be closer to that stated in the dissent. The limits the plurality would impose, in my view, give insufficient deference to Congress's purposes of enacting the Clean Water Act and to the authority of the executive to implement the statutory mandate. He may be one of my favorite justices, but there's some truth to the frequent criticism that he wasn't always the clearest. Justice John Paul Stevens wrote the lead dissent, which was joined by Justices David Souter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer. It begins with a history lesson. In 1969, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, coated with a slick of industrial waste, actually caught fire. Congress responded to that dramatic event and others like it by enacting the Clean Water Act. The text of the statute states that it was intended to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. Congress assigned broad regulatory powers to two executive agencies, the Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency, two agencies that can employ scientists and technicians having expertise in such matters as flood control, wildlife wildlife protection, and pollution, matters that are not particularly familiar to graduates of law schools. In other words, trust the experts. The Corps has simply applied the plain language of regulations that have been in place for over 30 years that were implicitly approved by Congress when it amended the statute in 1977 that were endorsed by this Court's unanimous decision in Riverside Riverside Bayview case in 1985 and that have been enforced in case after case after case for over three decades. Rather than continuing to defer to the Corps' long-standing interpretation of the statute that Congress authorized them to administer, they have come up with two separate approaches. Addressing the opinions Scalia and Kennedy wrote, he continued, Not only are both approaches wrong, as each of them explains in his criticism of the other's opinion. But more significantly, their joint conclusion represents an unwise shift in our jurisprudence. In the dissenter's view, the court should have deferred to the judgment of agency bureaucrats because the statutory language is ambiguous. Stevens concluded his dissent by remarking that the government's interpretation, Treating all such wetlands as waters of the United States is eminently reasonable. Let's unpack these opinions. Starting with Scalia's plurality, Damien said, The act says you can regulate waters of the United States. That necessarily implies that be regulable. It has to first be a water. So Justice Scalia spends most of his opinion in Rapanos explicating the meaning of waters using a very basic textual analysis, citing dictionaries and looking at, at how the the word is used in contrast to other parts of the statute. And he concludes that on a plain meaning analysis, waters are those relatively permanent bodies of water that you would refer to in ordinary parlance as things like streams and creeks and lakes and what have you. In contrast, Justice Kennedy, although he was in the majority in Rapanos, did not sign on to Justice Scalia's text-based analysis. Rather, he came up with this test called the significant nexus test, 
to elucidate the, the, the scope of the act. And what's remarkable about this test is that it really has no textual relationship whatsoever to the statute itself. I mean, the term significant nexus doesn't appear anywhere in the statute, or for that matter, as far as I know, anywhere in the legislative history. It's a term that was first used by the Supreme Court itself in an earlier Clean Water Act case describing an earlier Clean Water Act precedent of the court. So it's really just a casual descriptive term that Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, in Rapanos turns into the jurisdictional lodestar for the statute. And according to his view, there is a significant nexus and thus authority to regulate if a given wetland, either by itself or in combination with other similarly situated wetlands in an area, significantly affect the physical, chemical, or biological integrity of a downstream navigable water. Turning to Stevens' dissent, it was all about deference. Justice Stevens' dissent was essentially a a deference-type dissent. It was a dissent that said, we have these regulations that the EPA and the Corps have had on the books for several decades. These regulations clearly allow for the regulation of lots of wetlands, even if they're not inseparably bound up with other waters, even if they're they're, they're not right next to, to other waters, even if they're not navigable. And that given that the text of the, of the statute here is ambiguous, given that these regulations uh, seem to be a reasonable understanding of, of that ambiguity, given that Congress has had opportunities to overrule these regulations and it hasn't acted, and given that this is a technical or scientific question and the EPA and the Corps are the experts on these water quality matters, we, the court, should defer to uh, the, the regulations themselves. Jonathan had a bone to pick with Justice Stevens' perspective on what did and didn't lead to the passage of the Clean Water Act. He kind of repeats what I characterize as one of the fables of federal environmental regulation, which is that environmental quality was getting worse and worse and worse and worse until finally the federal government came in to, to rescue us. And we know with air pollution, we know with water pollution, that was not the case, that progress began prior to the enactment of the, the major federal environmental laws. The dissent's view in Rapanos is all these waters are connected together. And if the EPA and Army Corps think that they need to regulate all of this, they get to because that will protect water quality. And whatever one thinks of that as a policy matter, that's that's not the way the Clean Water Act is written. And that's not the nature of our constitutional structure. Um, so it's it's a very problematic view of federal authority. So after Rapanos, where you might say the justices muddied the waters, what happened in subsequent Clean Water Act cases? Here's Jonathan. Most lower court judges think that under this thing called the Marx Rule, you follow the, the substance of essentially the narrowest part of the holding or the, or the opinion that is part of the judgment that articulates the narrowest rule. And so under that theory, that would be Justice Kennedy's opinion. And so that has generally been where where most courts have ultimately ended up. And as for the EPA, Damien explained. Right after Rapanos was decided, EPA and the Corps issued a guidance document that was supposed to provide, as the name implies, guidance to the regulated public about how to administer the statute now that we have the significant nexus test from Justice Kennedy or a competing test from Justice Scalia. The guidance wasn't really very helpful. So in 2015, the Obama EPA issued what it called a clean water rule. And this rule basically more or less codified Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test, or at least tried to. 
while at the same time providing what EPA then thought were some uh, exemptions that would be valuable to industry or to, to agriculture. Shortly after that rule was, was published, though, uh, it was held to be illegal by a number of federal courts and essentially never really went into full effect throughout the country. Then with the election and the Trump administration, EPA tried a different approach and issued in 2020 what it called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. And this rule, unlike the prior rule, chose to focus on Justice Scalia's test as opposed to Justice Kennedy's and was was focused upon using that standard for determining jurisdiction. Well, just like though the Obama rule, the Trump rule was quickly overruled by a couple of federal district courts. And so despite significant efforts being made by the agency across two different, very different administrations, there was equally no success in actually trying to resolve the issue administratively. That brings us to Sackett versus EPA. Chantel and Mike Sackett bought land in a subdivision near Priest Lake in Idaho. They were one of the EPA's earliest post-Rapanos enforcement targets. Here's Damien. The Sacketts bought a, a lot in 2004. It's two-thirds of an acre. It's in a largely built-out residential subdivision near Priest Lake, Idaho. In 2007, they started to build the home after they had obtained their local county's approval. Two days after they started building the home, EPA and the Corps came onto the property and told them, you better stop your work because we think you're violating the Clean Water Act because we think there are wetlands on your property that are regulated under that act. Six months after that, EPA followed up the verbal order with a written compliance order that said that if you don't immediately restore the property to the way it was before you started construction, you'll be liable for tens of thousands of dollars per day in fines. This came as a great surprise to the Sacketts, since their lot contains no streams, no oceans, no rivers, no lakes, nothing you might traditionally consider a navigable water, and it lacked any continuous surface connection to any stream, ocean, river, or lake. The Sacketts didn't think the EPA had jurisdiction, so they sued to challenge the compliance order. The lower courts initially said the Sacketts had no right to sue because courts can't review this type of compliance order. Instead, they would have to wait until someday in the future when the EPA decided to bring down the hammer on them. As Jonathan described, they spent years merely trying to assert the ability to challenge the administrative compliance order before the agency sought to actually enforce it against them. The agency's position was the liability for violating the the compliance order could accrue until such time as the agency decided to actually bring an enforcement action. And the Sacketts spent years challenging that. They went all the way up to the Supreme Court. So the Sacketts are, are a good example of how of why a lot of landowners and others don't want to be in the situation of being subject to federal regulatory jurisdiction. Because once you're in, you can be in for a long time. Um, the Sacketts have been trying to develop their property for a very long time. For 15 years, to be precise. And in that previous trip to the Supreme Court, the justices held unanimously. The Clean Water Act is not a statute that precludes judicial review under the APA. That ruling was 10 years ago, and the Sacketts are back at SCOTUS this term. And now they're challenging EPA's authority to regulate their property. It's a circuitous and strained path from an actual navigable water to the Sacketts' property. As Damien explained... From the EPA's perspective, the reason why they have authority over the site is not because they think that the Sackett's particular property is itself significantly related to, say, Priest Lake, but rather because EPA 
combines the Sackett's property with about three dozen acres of wetlands that are on the other side of the street that fronts the Sackett's property. And EPA says, well, surely this large clump of wetlands on the other side of the street, those have a big impact on Priest Lake. And we're just going to throw the Sackett's property into that separate lot of wetlands, and we're going to treat them all as one. And by treating them all as one, then we therefore have authority over the Sackett's property too. Let me break down just how disconnected the Sackett's property is from a navigable water. Priest Lake is a navigable water. A non-navigable creek connects to Priest Lake. The non-navigable creek is connected to a non-navigable man-made ditch. Yes, that's right, a man-made ditch, which is connected to wetlands. Then, these wetlands, which are separated from the Sackett's lot by a 30-foot-wide paved road, are nevertheless similarly situated to wetlands alleged to exist on the Sackett's lot. These alleged wetlands on the Sackett's property, aggregated with the wetlands across the street, bear a significant nexus to Priest Lake. Did you get all that? The Sackets aren't the only ones who have battled the federal government's expansive view of its authority to regulate waters of the United States. There's also Andy Johnson, who was threatened with $20 million in fines after he dammed a small stream on his Wyoming property to build a stock pond. After the EPA dragged its investigation out for more than two years, Andy challenged the agency's actions. And only then did he learn that EPA bureaucrats had never bothered to investigate whether his pond was subject to federal regulation. Instead, the agency relied on a cursory review of Google Maps, which suggested a connection to a navigable water. In reality, the connection didn't exist. The agency backed down and Andy kept his stock pond and his money. And there's Joe Robertson, a disabled Navy veteran who lived in the Montana woods at the edge of a national forest. Joe dug a few ponds in the path of a small mountain water channel to provide water in case of forest fire. EPA bureaucrats declared the channel a navigable water, despite the fact that it was 40 miles from the nearest navigable river, and flowed a trickle of water roughly equivalent to the volume of a few garden hoses. EPA bureaucrats pursued Joe with a level of zeal that can only be described as vindictive and disproportionate. Joe spent the last five years of his life defending his actions. He was ordered to pay $130,000 in restitution, and even worse, spent 18 months in federal prison, all for digging a few small ponds. Joe passed away before his name was cleared. His wife, Carrie, carried on his fight, all the way to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, both his conviction and fines were thrown out. All too often, these stories don't have a happy ending. Property owners and business owners spend years tied up in agency investigations and litigation, facing threats of jail time and crushing fines. And it all hinges on how you define water. Thanks for listening to Dis. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist.pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out Dist. What are navig... What are... Oh God, navigable waters. What are navigable... (laughs) (laughs) It is a tongue twister. Navigable. twister. Okay. Uh, The Cuyahoga Cuyahoga River fire of 1969 was not the first time you had a river fire. And for those of you that um, live in other cities, you know, there were were similar events in various times in Columbus and Baltimore. Now you just have couches on fire in Ohio. Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County versus Army Corps of Engineers. Or, what is it? Swamp CC? Swank. Swank? Swank?
I'm going to start using that for like swank. <laughs> swank. <laughs> I guess it just is a word actually. I can never... <laughs> yeah, that's it's swanky. So wanky. But I'm going to mean it differently than anyone else knows. I wonder how they figured that out. Like, do you think a neighbor ratted him out or they saw? I don't know. It's interesting. I'm going to ask Jim. The PLF uh, encyclopedia. <laughs> Okay. The keeper of knowledge. Exactly. The giver. <laughs> if you if you go to the property, you would say, well, it looks like a dirt lot. I'm sorry. Hold on a second. People are like shouting on the other side of my wall. I don't want the okay. microphone to pick that up. For 15 years to be prepared. For 15 years to be. Blah, 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 blah. All right. All right. Record scratch. <laughs> One day in a hundred I don't know. I, I don't. I, I feel like I'm kind of lacking mental capacity to write anything new right now. <laughs> and now for a different tone. Everyone's going to die. Thanks for listening to Dist. <laughs> uh, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. I finally learned how to say navigable. 